Hello and welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at the University of Western Ontario. I'm your host, Brittany Melton. And I'm your co-host, Laura Munoz. And today we're joined by Mitch Mumby, a PhD candidate in microbiology and immunology. Mitch, thank you for being here today. Well, thank you for having me. So Mitch, you study viruses. I do. Would you be happy (laughs) to tell us more about it? Well, uh, I've been privileged to uh, get the opportunity to work on HIV. Uh, now, when we started working on this, it would have been probably 2017, so long before COVID. So at this point, HIV was kind of the, the, the cool kid in town still. Everyone was still talking about it. Lots of research was being put into it. So it was one of the things I really wanted to, uh, to, 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 to study a little bit more. You know, the one thing that I found really interesting was that my first ever biology lecture, the topic was the HIV replication cycle because it's the, really unique because in most viruses they go you know DNA RNA protein and that's how we kind of look at how life is but HIV does something really interesting where it actually goes from uh, RNA back to DNA and then starts to cycle over again so it goes in the reverse direction and as far as we know that's the only entity on earth that does this and to make it even more interesting unlike most viruses say COVID you get sick you clear the virus it's gone with HIV if you get infected you know it it integrates into your genome and it never leaves. So if you are infected, you are infected for life. So during the 1980s when HIV sort of burst onto the scene, there was a lot of uh, fear over how it gets transmitted, a lot of misinformation as it pertained to certain groups that were getting infected more at the time. We now know that a lot of these preconceived notions were, were horribly wrong and um, you know it was a, a really big blunder for the science community that you know all these assumptions were made. Uh, But, you know, despite the fact that, you know, we don't hear about it too much in the news still, HIV is a huge problem worldwide, uh, especially in developing countries, uh, notably in Africa, where, you know, the antiretroviral therapy that people rely on to live fairly normal and healthy lives while living with HIV, simply put, they're too expensive, uh, not enough is getting to the at-risk communities in Africa, uh, and it's still a, a huge problem to deal with. So it's, 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 for me, it's nice to work in something that's still very much relevant uh, to human health globally. So, Mitch, that's super interesting. You're doing uh, research that matters, which is very cool. And I'm wondering now, okay, you study HIV, which is a virus, uh, and this virus is integrated into their genome. Uh, people cannot uh, get rid of it. But what specific parts of the HIV cycle do, do you study, and why is that important? Yeah, so... Most people, uh, when they study a virus, you know, we, we, in the news, people are always trying to make vaccines to something. Uh, people have been trying to make a vaccine to HIV for decades, uh, but oftentimes it's pretty hard, uh, especially with the diversity of HIV, to do so. So uh, my research focus, uh, you know, going through undergrad, I was always very interested in how proteins interacted with other proteins and, you know, a host protein with a host protein and sort of what the function of that would, would be. Uh, now, with HIV, what's really interesting is that outside of all of the vaccine targets, there's these other proteins that HIV encodes, and it uses these proteins in order to, uh, to, to condition the cell, allow it to, to support replication, uh, and that ultimately allows for the uh, infection to be accelerated and accelerates disease progression from that. Hold on a second, just for distracted listeners. <laughs> Can you explain us a little bit about the virus infection cycle itself? Like, what's a virus and how it works? Because out of the sudden we're talking proteins, what's a, like a protein from a virus, what's the difference between the protein of a virus and a protein of a host? So can you please uh, dig down on that a little bit? Yeah, sorry, I'm not used to uh, 
being as a uh, general, so I do apologize. Uh, no, so HIV, just like any virus, it needs to enter the cell first. And so when, when you talk about a virus in general, all it really is is just a piece of genetic element. It could be DNA, it could be RNA, surrounded by usually a protein shell. And the only purpose of that protein shell is just to deliver that genetic content to whatever cell it's infecting. And its only purpose is to just replicate itself, find a new host, and complete the cycle over and over and over again. So Basically make copies of themselves yeah, exactly. forever. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. So uh, in, the, in the case of HIV, just like any virus, it needs to get into the cell. Once it does so, it undergoes a process which is unique to HIV called reverse transcription. This is what I was kind of referring to, where it, it takes its RNA genome and kind of makes DNA from the RNA. It goes in the backwards direction. And it's that DNA that it makes that is then able to that get integrated into the nucleus of the cell, which is where the chromosome is, and then that's where it kind of just stays for life. So let's say that uh, we humans have a book of instructions of how to make us. And then the virus, they have their own instructions. And what you're saying is that these uh, specific virus, what they're doing is like they are inserting their paragraphs into our big book. And then we uh, will have to live with that information if, uh, in ourselves for the rest of our lives. And that's how, why it is hard to remove the virus from the person's body. I couldn't have said it better myself. Okay, perfect. And then these uh, instructions, they are used to make proteins, and you're yep. studying some specific proteins that this virus is able to make. Yeah, so, so most viruses will encode something called accessory proteins. So these proteins aren't something that's necessarily required to make the actual virus itself. It's usually expressed in such a way that it, it allows for the cell to support replication. And in many ways, the cell's trying to attack HIV, right? It doesn't want HIV to inside of it. So the cell has what's called an intrinsic immune system. These proteins are actually designed to target the virus at various steps of its replication cycle. So, you know, we have a protein called uh, ApoBec, for instance, that is required to actually stop the reverse transcription process that I was telling you about before. And so when it, when it functions properly, HIV cannot replicate whatsoever. So you get this really interesting dynamic where you have virus versus host, virus versus host, but since the virus is already integrated to the cell, you get this really ongoing conflict between the two. And so these accessory proteins of HIV that I study, their primary goal is to counter a lot of these immune factors that the cell's throwing at it. And if it does so successfully, then HIV replicates successfully. But if it doesn't, then, well, then we get, you know, chronic, uh, chronic infection, which leads to immune dysfunction and ultimately, and ultimately AIDS in this scenario. Interesting. And I don't I don't know if this is jumping because I really don't know what this research process looks like to be like jumping around. But how do you study something that's happening at the cellular level? Is that like you literally are like taking a cell and putting it under a microscope? Like how, how do you how do you study that? Well, we uh, because HIV makes a double stranded DNA, we can actually clone these into uh, uh, they're called vectors. And, and when you introduce these vectors in the cells, they will actually make whatever protein you want. So it could be a host protein. It could be from a plant. It could be it doesn't really matter what it is. Uh, and so in this case, what we do is we just take cells. It could be from uh, from a, an individual, so for a healthy person for their blood cells. It could be cancer cells, which is how we often study uh, viruses. So it's just it's much easier to do so. Um, and so when we introduce this DNA into these cells, they will express the proteins that we want. And then oftentimes we use this really cool trick where we fuse these proteins with the fluorophores. So if you shine light at this fluorophore, it will absorb the light and then fluoresce light at a different uh, wavelength. 
And if you look at this under a microscope, you can actually see this. You can see where these proteins actually are in a cell by actually tagging these fluorophores. And so that's how we can actually look at what's going on within the cell and then also quantify whatever we're looking at. Okay, cool. So if I understand correctly, you said it before, and I thought this was, was a great analogy, the cell and the viruses, they're fighting each other, and they're producing a lot of stuff. And what you're doing is that you're putting some color into that stuff, so you are able to see it on a microscope. Exactly, yeah. Okay, so what specific part of those, uh, let's say, uh, arms <laughs> that the viruses have are you studying? Yeah, so we so we study uh, the the viral protein NEF, and and NEF is one of those uh, really interesting proteins. It's it doesn't really have a, a protein structure because usually when we talk about proteins, there's all these different structural elements. That's how we kind of study them, but it turns out that most proteins, and in this case, viral proteins, they often don't have structure. And the reason why it's important is because it, it it allows for all this flexibility to exist, and by being flexible, it's able to interact with various proteins of of all sorts. So NEF is one of these very flexible proteins. It's very promiscuous. It can interact with just about any protein we, we throw at it. And NEF does this because HIV needs a way to evade the immune system. And without NEF doing all of its functions, which it kind of does simultaneously in a cell, um, HIV would never be successful replication-wise. So it's really interesting to kind of see which proteins NEF is interacting with and why it's doing that. And if we understand why it's doing that, we can kind of figure out, okay, HIV is trying to do this. But we, can, we, we know this now, and we can actually target it, and that's where you get drugs to target these interactions that can always be designed. So that's sort of the work that, you know, it's the translational aspect that I won't necessarily get a chance to, to do in my PhD, but just identifying these basic mechanisms, these interactions, it just gives you an idea of what you could potentially target down the line should we need to do so. I see. So then for yourself, because you said that you won't be involved in that translational process, for yourself, are you part of like a team of researchers right now that are doing that work and then like potentially like there's a PI who's heading that and then you are one of the researchers in like a lab setting? Pretty pretty much. And, and it depends on what aspect of the, of, of the thesis. But the main part of it is, is you know, it, it involves work that's collaborative from people you know, all over the world. We have people uh, mostly in Africa, but also in America that are kind of coordinating a lot of these cohorts where we're getting these samples from. So there is a collaborative aspect to pretty much all of my work. And this is important because it ensures that whatever we're looking at is relevant in the context of an actual infection right now in 2023. It's one, a lot of, you know, the viruses that HIV we work with, uh, a lot of these were discovered in the 80s and have been used ever since because they're convenient, they're easy to use, well characterized, but it's not exactly that relevant when we consider that we're now 30, 40 years in the future. Well, what's happening right now? Uh, so. Whenever we get these samples, the, 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 the important part is that, yes, I'm not the one going to Africa getting them. We need tons of people to help out with this. So there's lots of collaboration. And just because our lab is known as being the NEF lab uh, and knowing that this is important as it pertains to disease progression in infected individuals, we kind of get a lot of this work put to us because, you know, we're the ones that know how to study it. Not everyone knows how to, how to apparently do this. So... Uh, so so it, that's the really cool part of it is it's just because we, you know, my, my PI, Dr. Dikiakos, he has this sort of, uh, you know, longstanding reputation in Canada, America, that this is what we study. And if you want to look at this in your cohort, just, uh, you know, talk to us and we'll, we'll figure it out. 
I think that's so interesting that you're talking about it being a colla collaborative effort. And now I'm thinking about when you talk about samples and different cohorts, are you telling us that you're uh, noting differences between proteins from different patients or different cohorts? Or how do you take those samples and study what those what the proteins those different viruses are are uh, synthesizing because I know viruses evolve but I'm wondering what does it mean in real like in actual settings that you are studying yeah so uh, for the for the one uh, part of the of the thesis we would you know take take patient DNA and amplify off the the, the nest sequence essentially because it's all integrated to the genome uh, from each one sorry What do you mean by amplifying off? Oh yeah, sorry. Uh, so we we need some way of, of being able to sequence whatever the integrated virus is into these infected individuals. We know where to look where NEF is within that, and so what we do is we uh, is we more or less take a snapshot of that specific part of the genome where NEF is. We sequence them, so we know what to expect. And then because HIV is so genetically diverse, and NEF itself is also very diverse, you know between each patient, there's going to be tremendous genetic diversity. And so when you look at the genetic diversity of NEF and knowing that NEF's involved in disease progression and then looking at how these patients have progressed in their disease, like very much in vivo. So usually we look at CD4 T cell levels. That's a cell that HIV infects. That's usually a good indicator to see where people are at in terms of their immune dysfunction. But beyond a certain point, there is immune dysfunction that causes AIDS. But every, but every person progresses differently. Some people progress very fast, some people progress very slow. So a lot of my work is trying to look at the diversity of the NEF sequence, looking at the diversity of disease progression, and figuring out why it is that some people are progressing much faster than others. And so a lot of my work is then taking that NEF, doing a whole bunch of functional stuff, looking at what it's doing to various proteins, and then trying to see if there's a link between all of that. So when you talk about genetic this uh, genetic sequences, you're talking about the book, right? So you're comparing yeah. like different versions of the same book, and you're seeing how the different versions are maybe having a different outcome on their patients. Yeah, exactly. Cool. Okay, so I kind of want to take a step back and think, and and I'm kind of curious, and I'm trying to think about even how to word this question. Basically, how did you get from your master's work, whatever work you did in your master's, which actually I, I don't know. So first of all, what did you do in your master's? And then how did that bring you to this, like both this lab and this work? Because this is like, I mean, it's really interesting and very special, but like, were you already working on this in your MA or did you transfer into this? So it's a, it's a bit of an interesting story. I'll make a, a long story short. Uh, I was an undergrad student. I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life. So I uh, did the internship program uh, with the Faculty of Science here. So I worked at Labatt uh, Breweries here in London for a year. And I realized very quickly that I did not want to work at Labatt Breweries of London for the rest of my life. So when I got back to school, I figured, you know, I really needed to find a research lab for my fourth year uh, and, and see kind of what I can get. And Jimmy, my, my, my uh, supervisor, Dr. Dikiakos, he... You know, he, he he read my email, thought it was kind of uh, kind of funny. I talked about how uh, you know I'm used to disappointment because I'm a Leafs fan, so uh, <laughs> so so I'm I'm pretty used to how science is probably going to play out for me. And he thought that was funny, uh, so he took me on, and, and you know he does all the HIV work. So I kind of just started just going into it, and it was at that time that we kind of had this collaboration start up. So my fourth year work, my my, my project, was really just taking these sequences, getting them sequenced for, first and foremost. 
uh, and doing very basic tests on them, doing the cloning, which is how we move DNA into these vectors that I was telling you about to then put into cells. I did all of that work my fourth year, and it just so happened that there was an interesting result that we weren't expecting. And so for my master's, which I decided to continue on for my fourth year, I was really curious to kind of explore this really random result that I got that didn't really seem that important at the time, but now it's kind of the whole basis of everything that I'm doing. Uh, and so at the, it was just one of those things, the more I got immersed into it, the more I kind of followed the science and all the experiments subsequently, um, it just became apparent that there was a lot of a lot more work I could do. And so when it came time to kind of decide, do I want to transfer, do I want to you know, just finish up my master's and figure what to do with my life after that, I decided that you know there's there's enough here, and, and I'm and I'm pretty interested in the work, and it's one of those things that, at the end of the day, you can kind of see, yeah, you're making a little difference. It doesn't have to be a big one, uh, but you know, from working at Labatt, where the work was, frankly, mind-numbing, very you know very uh, monotonous, this was kind of a, a really interesting outlet that was different than that, and that's something that I could see myself doing at, to some extent in the future. So. That was sort of how I started my master's. And honestly, I didn't go from like one project to the next. My project in my PhD was a project I started off my fourth year. It's just evolved into so many different branches and angles that I couldn't really anticipate. But that's the beauty of it. I mean, uh, I've known lots of people that had their whole PhDs planned out when they were just starting. And uh, I feel like that's a good way to you know, get pretty anxious about where you're at. So. For me, it was very much a let's see what happens and we'll just go where the results are telling me to go and, you know, just, uh, yeah. That's very beautiful because it sounds like your curiosity has been like opening the path for you, like where to go. And now I'm wondering, uh, what did you find out or what have you been finding out during this time that you think that is interesting to share? Well, when I first started uh, my master's, the, there was a discovery that there's this human protein called serine 5 that it, it turns out is really, really potent against HIV. If you have nothing that attacks serine, serine will make sure that HIV doesn't go anywhere. And that was really cool because, you know, research has been kind of trying to find this particular protein for years and never really could. So when I first started my master's, this was kind of when it was discovered. Uh, and, and so NEF just so happens to counter serine 5 because of course it does. And so a lot of my work was then trying to figure out, okay, in this particular context, is there a relation between that genetic diversity of those patient NEF sequences, their ability to downregulate serine 5 or counter serine 5, sorry, uh, and then does this then also link to their associated disease progression? And so a lot of that work, you know, when you're looking at any patient data, it's, it's, there's a lot of confounding factors that exist. But what I ultimately found were these two particular patients, uh, the uh, acutely infected Zimbabwean women. One was able to counter serine 5 remarkably well, and one was just not at all able to. And when you looked at their disease progression profiles, the one that, that countered serine 5 quite well progressed to AIDS really, really fast. The one that didn't did not progress at all. So the, the, the question I had was, was there something in the sequence of their NEF proteins that was ultimately, you know, explaining this? And so what I had to do was I, I, I did this chimera approach where I would swap various regions of the one protein with the other and just did that over and over and over and over again just through deduction. And eventually I found, you know, various uh, mutations that occurred that kind of explain why this is happening. Well, so you were able to explain how HIV was able to overcome uh, serine 5, which is like the 
ideal protein for humans to have if they are infected with HIV? So I, I got to be careful with that. I can't say it definitely caused it, but I can say that it was definitely a contributing factor that was associated with it. That's amazing. It's really, it's really, really cool. Uh, and 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 you know, the the one fascinating thing is that just because I'm applying this work to one specific cohort, doesn't necessarily mean that it's only applicable to that cohort. There, this is applicable to just about any sequence that 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 exists worldwide. There was an article that came out about a year ago uh, in Science, uh, and it, 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 it described this hypervirulent strain of HIV that was circulating in the Netherlands. And, you know, so naturally we're saying, okay, well, there's disease progression differences. You know, this has been going on now for about 10, 15 years. They've been kind of following this. What is it about this virulent strain that's causing this increased disease progression? So we obviously go right to NEF. That's what we study. And so we take all the tools that I use from... Uh, the cohort that I was referring to previously, and we apply it to this situation here, and we can actually then use the exact same experiments to kind of also see, well, is it because of this? Is this a contributing factor? And so that's some of the work that we're doing right now, but it just kind of highlights that this is something that, you know, it's not necessarily applicable to just one thing. A lot of cohorts, the, the results are very confined to just that cohort. You know, if you're looking at a certain region of the world, there could be different factors that are causing certain things to happen. But I think what's cool with this is that you kind of approach it from a very unbiased perspective. And, you know, by identifying these associations, it's just it's just very helpful for researchers when they're looking at these differences to kind of see, okay, well, maybe it's because of this. So if anything, I hope that my work highlights, you know, these are some factors that people can look at, see, all right, if we do sequence the the, the virus itself, what can we ultimately expect? And so if you're, imagine you're someone that just got infected with HIV, we're in a world now with personalized medicine, which I hope happens much quicker than it is, we sequence the virus right away. That patient, based on the sequence of various proteins that, you know, that are encoded by HIV, you know, we, we can get a pretty good idea what the prognosis of their disease progression would look like. Now, some people don't necessarily need to be on these antiretrovirals, so some people don't progress at all. The, the reason why I say that is because these antiretrovirals are extremely toxic, right? Well, not extremely, but over time, some people can't tolerate these drugs. So if, in theory, you're not progressing, there may not be a need to be put on these drugs necessarily or as at a higher concentration or dosage. So it's one of these things that it can really help with the prognosis of, of, of a patient's infection um, by knowing this information. Okay, I have two questions, and they're completely far apart from each other. But the one I think that's closest to what we're talking about is with the cells that you're studying or with the strands that you're studying, the proteins that you're studying, are these like snapshots in the case that they're like frozen in time, in the time that you take them, and so there's not further progression happening? Or is it like in the sample that you have, they can continue to progress? Yeah, so, so all the cells that we work with, the, we, we are looking at different proteins, but they're all being introduced in the same cells. So it's not like there's any variability with the cells that are being used. So when we look at anything, we do our little, we introduce the DNA that we want, they express the proteins that we want, they go do their particular function for a certain amount of time. Usually I do 24 hours, but then afterwards we do, we do uh, immerse them in uh, paraformaldehyde, which does freeze them in time. So you are looking at the end stage snapshot of what's happening. Okay, cool. Yeah. I was gonna say because I I am trying to wrap my head around like what happens if like <laughs> if this like active cell transgresses and has 
AIDS now, like then do you say, okay, that one's tossed, but this makes more sense? Yeah, and 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 honestly, uh, when you're when you're dealing with a lot of these cell types, or you know, it they they don't they don't like to express these proteins. It's not they're not used to doing that. So over time, they will just they will just not like you. They will they will just say, nope, we're not doing the thing that you want us to do, and you have to start over because this is not going to work. So. You know, I'm fortunate that I don't necessarily have to work with these primary cells. So primary cells are just cells from you or me. They're from anyone. Uh, whereas I usually work with cell lines. So those are cancer cells. So they don't like dying. They like to replicate like crazy. They're very easy to work with. Now, my one colleague has to work with primary cells. And so it's always just not very fun. Frustration. Yeah, sometimes the cells just don't want to behave. And uh, I always have to... I always feel bad for her a little bit, but uh, so I don't have to worry about that problem as much. But uh, but there are definitely researchers that do only primary cell work, and I do uh, I do definitely sympathize with them because it's not easy. Okay, well my other question, completely different, completely different. But this entire time that we're talking about HIV, and you started right off by talking about kind of like historically HIV and the way that it was talked about right when like yeah you said I think pandemic or epidemic i'm not sure which word we'd use for that i think we can call it a pandemic okay yeah and then and and then kind of like this this to me there's like the two sides of things right where there's like the science that's happening the the thing that you're doing and you're actively involved in and then there's the media oh good which is the side that i'm on because i study media studies and so then in this middle spot is where kind of people come to this understanding of what are things like HIV, like what is HIV? What kind of threat does it pose to me? Where does it come from? And so I kind of like, I'm, I'm curious kind of where, where you see like the connection between science and media. Like, is it you publish a study and the media picks it up? Or is it like you literally have to go about releasing information and the media adapts it? Because I really, I just highly doubt that it's a scientist says this. And it's published in the media. Like, and then someone finds there's out. A, I feel like there's a lot of no. interpretation happening yeah, between so, those steps. So, so, and I'm obviously not the probably the most experienced dealing with this, but what, what I have experienced myself is that if you have published a study that you think is really, really good, like it actually has some like very legitimate real-world uh, implications, what often happens is once it is published, you are kind of your own media person you're the one that has to reach out to the media and say, listen, you know, we actually have something really interesting here. Now, usually there are people that liaison these sort of things, but my experiences with it is that if you just publish something in a scientific journal, no one in the media is going to read it unless you tell someone about it. Uh, and if you do that, then maybe someone down the line says, okay, it, it's interesting. But if you don't tell anyone, uh, I can almost guarantee, at least, at least with my work, when I published my paper in Journal of Virology, n- no one came knocking on my door for any media uh, requests. Now, I don't think I was expecting that, <laughs> but uh, but 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 I don't think this happens unless you kind of get the ball rolling on your own. I see. Yeah, because I I think I wonder how much of that space is like is is that interpretation that center part where it's like um, scientists have these findings and either go to the media or the media somehow finds finds out. Uh, and then there's like that in middle space that there's that interpretation and that's what gets released or that's like the catchy headline or whatever it might be. And that's then what's picked up because these really like 
nuanced and old uh, ideas of what HIV is are these things that we're still talking about in media studies. Like, can you believe that this is what we ran with? And so, you know, and, and you said it 40 years down the line. So I'm, I, I'm really like, where is the miscommunication happening? And to be fair, to talk about this is not that easy, right? Like, no. look at all the, all the background we yeah. needed in order just to explain NEF, right? Like, it's been 20 minutes of talking, right? So it's it's a complicated complicated task to fill that gap. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I think, you know, back back in the 80s where there wasn't social media, you know, this is like all these legacy cable networks that were ultimately giving you the news. Like I went, when I was a kid, we used to watch Global News and they would tell us about all these scientific studies that just came out and how to interpret it. Now, back, you know, back then, you I don't think scientists were necessarily held as accountable to some of the things they said to the media and vice versa. So when things get misinterpreted, they really get misinterpreted. There is no sort of checks and balances. There's no one on Twitter saying, listen, I don't think that's actually right. I'm going to challenge you on that. So there's a lot of like, yeah, maybe broken telephone. Someone hears something that gets misinterpreted, and all of a sudden uh, there's there's a whole media hysteria going on. And I think the, the, the best example of that, unfortunately, is when HIV was just discovered, you know, at least w- in a Western context. Like this was ravaging Africa long before it was discovered in a Western sense, and we're very... We're very uh, uh, selfish to assume that, like, this is only a problem because we discovered it here and now. When it became our problem. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And that's a huge problem because we just ignored, as a society, what was going on. Uh, we didn't want to deal with it, basically. And so when it emerged, it emerged primarily within the gay community. That's just how it was initially being spread. And so when people recognize that this was happening, scientists say, predominantly men who have sex with men are getting HIV, media takes that this is strictly only with gay people. And you would think that, you know, looking back hindsight 2020, that's ridiculous. It's very silly. But then we saw with the monkeypox outbreak that this is the exact same thing happened. And it really bothered me because it's just like, no, there's nothing saying that this has to be transmitted amongst just one group of people. Anyone can get it. And to message in such a way that implies that it, this is the case. It's very disingenuous for a public health standpoint, too. And 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 going through that, um, you know, being a little bit more aware of the world, it, yeah, it was really frustrating uh, because a lot of misinformation then gets peddled. People then start to stigmatize, and the stigmatizing of anything is just, as we see, it's terrible, and especially with social media where everything is so instant. Now there is no real arbiter of truth. You know, you can say whatever you want. Well... No one's going to hold you accountable for it. So that's sort of what I'm seeing happening. And I don't think we learned all of the lessons that we should have learned from the HIV epidemic, pandemic. Uh, and we're seeing that all the time with any new emerging virus. We're seeing it with COVID every day, with all the misinformation that gets peddled. Uh, but at this point in time, you know, you'd think that having someone be there to tell you that maybe the information you're getting is not correct would help make the science better, the messaging better. I'm finding that the opposite is happening. Now it's the point where you're scared to tell someone that they're potentially wrong or they're misleading because there's a weird cult on the internet that will follow you and harass you if you think otherwise. Uh, So it's kind of doing a disservice and working kind of paradoxically in the reverse direction, which is not very good, I wouldn't say. Mitch, so this makes me think about you like... uh your experience doing your PhD, uh, you're in a very important topic, and you're in also in a topic that has a lot of ethical uh, issues involved. So I'm wondering how will you 
if you can talk a little bit before we leave about uh, how your experience doing a PhD has been and how it has changed you. Because uh, I can imagine that going through something as hard as a PhD, doing research that is like complicated, and I can only imagine all the issues that you have to face. And then also being on a topic that is so uh, complex in terms of how you talk about it, how you communicate your findings. So can you just tell us a little bit about how you have deal with, with all of these and balance out all of these uh, things? You know, I, I, I'm, I'm from a small town in, in Ontario. Uh, you know, I, we don't, you know, I didn't really know a lot about the world before I came to Western, uh, really. Uh, and so I think going through the PhD, what, what I will say, you know, from more of a personal standpoint is just you know, by, it forces you to be around so many people of different backgrounds, beliefs, you know, viewpoints on the world. And, and I, I get the privilege, you know, we have a conference that's just for HIV research in Canada, CAR. And, and this, this conference is really fascinating because unlike most conferences we go to, it's very science, right? Very, you know, very, you know, the, 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 the bare bones of what we're doing. What CAR is really interesting because it takes different aspects of HIV research. So it's not just the science, it's not just the, the clinical aspect to it. There's, ob there's all the social programs and all the social studies that go into actually trying to help people and marginalized communities combat HIV. Now, in Canada, unfortunately, oftentimes HIV prevalence is correlated with intravenous drug use. And we know that certain groups are more affected by this um, and, and obviously are then uh, more exposed to HIV and other infections. And so a car is really fascinating because you get to see the stats. You get to see the research people are doing as pertains to the human element of HIV. And we, I've met so many people that are living with HIV, you know, and, and are currently living with HIV. And it's just these types of things, it just brings everything back home when you, you're on the lab bench and you're kind of annoyed with how things are going, thinking that there are people that are, that are living with this, that are actually studying this. And sometimes, you know, this is what I think is really fascinating about the work that I do is that there's such an intersectional uh, uh, relationship between everything. And so whenever I go to these conferences, I love attending these, these social seminars because I don't experience any of this myself. I can't possibly imagine being in these situations myself. And so it helps you better understand and contextualize a lot of the work that you're doing and even then why you're doing it. So I think from a personal standpoint, it just helped me really mature become a more uh, uh, accepting person because you're more aware of the things that are going on and how certain inequities affect people. Uh, and, and, and obviously, I, I'm not necessarily someone that can, you know, I've not experienced a lot of these things myself. So it, it, it helps you kind of understand, uh, which then obviously makes your work better for it. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I'm just trying to process that because that was very well put. Um, but there's that there and, and it exists in all like it's easy to say that with science, it's more removed from life, but it, it exists in all areas of research for myself included. Like my my I've, people working in my research are disconnected from the people that it benefits, the people that it affects, like all of that. And so to speak to kind of exactly how there's like that space where you can interact like you might be doing work that is it keeps you from people right you can be that like a little hermit and like which i love as, yeah as, as, <laughs> <laughs> but then there's these moments where you get to like have that full experience of like here's where my research can like be put into public health can affect these people can like be affected in like or put in place with public programs and things like that and um and we're all the better for it and i will say just one last thing the 
you know the work that these that a lot of these people are doing to help marginalized communities um it, it's remarkable it, it it really is and it takes so much effort and and you know public funding to allow for this to happen and you know there are threats to remove a lot of this public funding and it's just really a shame because if people were to actually go to these conferences and see what the work is that's being done they would really understand how important it is so yeah, absolutely. I think that that's a really good place to leave for like a local context too, right? Yeah. These discussions of like public health care, public health. Okay, cool. Um, well, I'm going to end us off here. So cool. this has been Gradcast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I've been your host, Brittany Melton, and my co-host was Laura Munoz Bayana. We've been speaking with Mitch Mumby, and this episode was produced by Laura Munoz Bayana. Uh, if you would like to be involved with the show or get in contact with us, email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Gradcast Radio. Uh, to listen to us, we're on Radio Western 94.9 FM. You can also find us and all of our episodes on our website at gradcast.ca or on podcast apps like Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Alternatively, select episodes have been uploaded to YouTube at Gradcast Radio. Thank you for listening and have a great night.